Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spider. So as promised in last week's episode, we're going to go back to that episode for a bit and talk about a couple of the comments I got regarding substrate and what people use, what mixes they use. I uh, was hoping to get a few more, but we'll see. You know, If somebody wants to chime in in the future, please feel free because I know there's a lot of different things out there that people use. I'm interested in hearing about because that's how I get some of my ideas. Sometimes I hear something from somebody and I went that, you know, I think to myself, that could be a really cool thing to try. So for example, I was talking, I believe last week, how I have some Lephista species coming and I was experimenting with some excavator clay with my substrate and I really liked the way it came out. I mixed up a, a nice recipe, so to speak of peat moist cocoa fiber so i mixed those up together and then added probably we're looking probably 10 to 20 percent of it i'd I'd go uh, lean closer to 10 percent of it of that excavator clay and mix up in a smaller batch and really like the quality of it and like the smell of it too you can actually smell the clay in it which i thought was pretty cool and then mix that up for the lithosis species i got coming in so i'll keep people updated on how that goes i know there's a way there's a certain type of kitty litter you can buy that's basically the same clay and it's a lot cheaper because you can get it in a big bag. The problem is you got to basically mash it all up. So I know somebody that originally approached me with this idea said they have an old blender they use, and they said don't use your wife's good blender because it'll completely ruin the blender. But you basically grind it all up to a finer, you know, sand-like consistency, and you add that to your substrate, and it helps to form those dens. So we'll see how that goes. I'm very, uh, hopefully those Lephysis species are, I believe, coming in this week. So I'll be able to report more on that. But I like the mixture. And that's one of the things I play with. There's always, you know, the charcoal was something I started adding because some people are like, hey, you should try adding charcoal to it. It really helps. And speaking of charcoal, we got a comment from Billy Sveen, I think it is. I apologize if I pronounced it wrong. Um, activated charcoal is great to add to substrate. If you don't want to pay premium for horticultural charcoal, you can get organic lump charcoal for barbecuing and smash it up. Messy but cheap. I didn't even think of trying that. That's a great idea. I think all I pictured, I didn't consider it, honestly, because I haven't bought charcoal in years. We have a gas grill. But the I thought maybe there was additives or something. I was a little worried about that. But the fact they make organic stuff that you can smash up sounds great. We have one here from Taven Wright. Reptisoil is great. I've used it for almost all of my reptiles, amphibians, spiders at some point, and it's never disappointed. It has pretty much all the goods you need in a good soil, good middle ground. Reptisoil, I think, was one I was trying to think of. And this is one that back when I first started getting into the hobby, I had a lot of people that would email me, go, hey, can I use Reptisoil? Can I use Reptisoil? And I remember at the time, I'd never used it. So I'm like, I don't know. I've never used it before. It's not something I personally use. So I would go on a rack of boards and search to see if other people had used it. But I've heard from many, many people over the course of the years that use this with no issue whatsoever, which is great because that gives us another alternative. I had one person email upset because they're like, hey, I bought BioDude Substrate because you said it was good stuff and now you're not using it anymore. That wasn't what I was saying. I want to make it very clear and I did try to uh, reinforce this point. I love the BioDude stuff. I am not trying to put down BioDude stuff. I think it's great. It's I bought many, many, many bags of it. It's just I'm moving away from it because it was becoming very, very expensive. And I found myself waiting to do rehousings because I was waiting to have a couple hundred bucks to buy dirt when I could do the whole thing for cheaper myself. So for people that want to use BioDude, use it. I totally endorse it. I totally, and this isn't a paid endorsement. I 
love the stuff. I've bought, I've spent a lot of my own money on it. So I think it's great substrate. But again, it comes down to value, your personal value. If you think it's worth the price, pick it up. For me, having the size of the collection I have, having the amount of substrate I've been using lately, it's just, it's become cost prohibitive for me. But for people with smaller collections that are putting them in nice enclosures, they're maybe putting plants in there that want that, that nice substrate, that premium substrate, absolutely go for it. So I want to make that clear. I knew that was going to happen. That somebody was going to take things the wrong way. It's one of the fun things of doing a podcast every week where you're constantly running at the mouth, sharing your opinions. Somebody can take it the wrong way and twist it. So I 100% love the BioDude stuff. Just we're talking about alternatives to that. So Rep the Soil was one. I'm glad that got mentioned. Then my buddy Eric texted me that he used Jungle Mix by Zilla. He said that stuff holds on to moisture like nothing I've ever used. I've used it in my Sturmy's old enclosure by itself, and it never dried out. It's actually still sitting out in my shed two years later and is just now fully dried out. I probably wouldn't use it on its own again, but definitely a great addition for a substrate mix. So that's one I haven't used before either, and I definitely... Some of these I will probably grab to check out. Just I like reporting on my own personal stuff. Not that I don't trust what other people are saying. I like to be able to say, all right, I didn't just hear this from somebody else. I used it myself. And yes, I like what it can do. So I may have to pick up a bag of Reptisoil and the Zilla stuff just to try it out because I've never used it before. And again, I like experimenting with things. Maybe something that holds, that sounds like something, and I was telling Eric the same thing, that I would consider using for slings. Because slings, sometimes you need a different substrate for slings. Sometimes something you pack into a larger enclosure is works better than uh, in that big environment than it does in a little environment. And I know I've had substrates I've mixed before that were great in the larger enclosures. Then you shove them in a little dram vial and they don't absorb water well. They don't hold on to water well and it becomes an issue. So I'm always looking. That's one of the things I do have a bag of BioDude and I do sometimes use the BioDude in the smaller enclosures. I like it for that. But something that I know I bought a couple years ago, I went to a show and bought a couple spiders that were in the little vials and little containers. And this, whatever substrate they were using, I loved. It was like extra fine cocoa fiber almost. It really sucked in and absorbed moisture very well. So when I went to rehydrate these enclosures, I, I poured a little water down the side. It would soak right down on through, which I loved. And I meant to ask the dealer what the heck it was, and I never did. I probably should have because it worked a heck of a lot better than a lot of the stuff I had been using. And then finally, I got an email from, hopefully I pronounce your name right, Mark Keiter. And Mark is from Germany. I'm so glad somebody chimed in from Germany because for anybody that doesn't know Germany, a lot of Germany is responsible for many of the species we have in the hobby. They were way ahead of Americans in terms of keeping and what they do over there. So it was great to hear from somebody from Germany. But Mark put, enjoy your last podcast about substrate mixing. You asked what substrate other people use. And here's my take on it. Plain and simple soil from a nearby forest. When I have to set up a new tank, I take a walk, find myself a nice area with a large beech preferred maple or birch trees, brush off the uppermost layer of dry leaves and take the soil beneath. Half rotten leaves and beech nuts included. After that, I cover the area with leaves again and done. No further treatment at all, just into the tank it goes. The stuff is absolutely wonderful. You can pour water into it and it takes it like a drain. It is very stable, meaning I never had any mold outbreak or anything. Not even in more moist soil because it basically is ready-made, fully functioning ecosystem. 
Since I started using forest soil, the plants grow like weeds as well. It's also very good for burrowing. My age iniculata can testify if you want. I would love to hear that, actually. Some caveats, of course. First, you got to be sure that there's no contamination. Here in Germany, we have very strict environmental laws, and no one in his right mind sprays chemicals of any kind in a forest area. In fact, I would go as far as trusting the soil from a few hundred meters into the woods more than I would trust any substrate I could buy. Second, this method can be applied only for small collections. I have four spiders in a colony of Pastala harida. They're all in relatively big tanks compared to hobby standards, but still not a lot. Digging up forest soil for a collection of 100 spiders would be A, way too stressful, and more important, B, not very sustainable. For bigger collections, I still would recommend mixing in small amounts of this stuff into substrate in each tank to inject some ecosystem into it, so to speak. A word about the other life in the soil. Yes, it's in there. Plenty of it. I found small isopods, tiny centipedes, worms, and other creatures in there, but they really don't do any harm. Probably the opposite is they most likely keep the ecosystem stable, so I don't bother picking them out of there. All of this works fine here in our neck of the woods, and many keepers here use soil taken from the wild. Harvesting molehills is a favorite pastime for spider keepers here. In tropical areas or in areas where one can't be sure about possible contamination, it's probably not recommended. For a variety or mixing, I use sand from a nearby sand pit, which conveniently also has some layers of clay in it, so that base is covered as well. The stuff is from the late ice age, so no, I'm not concerned about any pesticide either. I also collect moss, pieces of bark, and wood in the wild, no conifer wood because of the resin fumes, and never had any problems with that. All good stuff. Zero cost, fresh air, and some exercise, and happy spiders and pretty enclosures. The only thing I buy actually is cork bark. That is much more convenient. I have attached two photos so you can see the soil, leaves, and other stuff in action. Keep up the great work. Kind regards, Mark. So sorry for reading the whole thing, but I thought there was so much good information in there and a great way to explain the big difference between, I think, how Europeans keep and Americans keep. And this is the one that comes up quite a bit. It seems like in Europe, a lot of folks, a majority of folks, they don't bother buying. and They kind of giggle when we talk about what we buy over here in the U.S. They go out and they collect it in the wild. And I, this is the first most detailed response I've received as far as where they get it from how they do it, which I think is awesome. I think in the U.S., I don't know. I've, I've been asked this before. I think my thing is in the U.S., we do, he mentioned that they have very stringent ecological standards about what they have to spray when they can spray and that doesn't happen. So I think that would be the big worry for me. I think uh, last house I lived at, I told you guys, we had power lines that ran through. They sprayed a bunch of crap around there to keep, they were basically clearing all the brush away from the power lines and then they sprayed some type of herbicide around the area to keep down the plants and the trees from growing up, which scared the heck out of me. It was far enough from my home that I wasn't really worried about it wafting into my tarantula room, but reminded me of why I couldn't go. There's a patch of woods across my street that we owned that I considered harvesting some dirt from just to try it out, and it reminded me of why I couldn't do that. And I've heard from other people, again, where they spray for mosquitoes, especially down south where they don't know they're doing it. That stuff's going everywhere. People that are, live near golf courses, same thing. So I unfortunately think in the U.S., at least certain parts of the U.S. or certain states we don't have those stringent environmental controls people spray stuff on their lawns they spray stuff around their house and i think there's always that concern that you're going to get something contaminated now as far as going out into the middle of the woods somewhere and grabbing stuff yeah i would guess that would i considered it my old house it was a place that we used to walk it was an old railroad trail that we'd walk deep into the woods and i always joked to billy i'm betting if we could pull some stuff out here there's not going to be anything contaminated it's way out in the middle of the woods not many people go out there but i've never done it myself so part of me loves that idea i love the fact that you explained that because that's the one thing that the other thing that freaks people out is the fact that you're pulling in 
substrate that is going to have a lot of local fauna in it. You're going to have a lot of insects, isopods, the you know centipedes, worms, things of that nature. And I think a lot of folks worry that that's going to pose some type of threat to their tarantula. But the fact that you're saying that it doesn't, it's intriguing. It gets me thinking. Now, obviously, here's the deal. A lot of times when this comes up, people in the U.S. go, oh, over there in Europe, they take all stuff from outside. That's completely wrong. You can't do that. And I always have to point out, it's like there's our preferred way of, everybody has their preferred way of doing things, their preferred way of, you know, setting them up, what they use for substrate, how they set them up. It, so many folks in Europe have been doing this for so long. If it had become a big deal, if things are dropping off right and left because of parasites, because of, you know, contaminants in the substrate, contaminants in the plants that they're pulling out, the the bark, whatever it may be, they probably would have stopped a long time ago because we would be talking about constantly how, yeah, over in Europe, they're constantly losing spiders because they're pulling stuff from outside and it's killing them. So obviously it's working for them. I, I'm not going to sit there and try to argue with anybody that the folks that have been using this, and I've spoken to other folks in the hobby, that over overseas in Europe, UK, that they pull substrate and stuff out all the time. I've never had an issue for it. I do worry. I think some of us in the US are a little more concerned again because of the possibility of exposure to nasty things, but it does get you thinking. And I do like that Mark pointed out the fact that this works better for a smaller collection because I do know there's folks out there that go out and I've seen videos of it where they're pulling up huge sections of moss and dirt and things out of the wild, which again, isn't really a good thing thing. Um, I think this would be better for smaller collections overall. For me to go out and get as much dirt, it's funny because they uh, recently put a new house on our street this year, and I remember them digging up the foundation, and there was all this wonderful sand and clay sitting out there. I remember telling Billy I'd love to sneak down here at night with a couple buckets and grab a bunch of this nice dark dirt, sand, clay, all this great stuff that would make an amazing substrate. But I didn't because I know the person next door had just had their lawn done, had a bunch of stuff sprayed on it. God only knows if that seeped through, so I didn't do it. But definitely, Mark, I appreciate you chiming in on this one because I think for those in the U.S., it's jarring to hear this is what people do because a lot of us don't do it but that's the norm over there and it works well i have woods here would i ever think of pulling anything out of it i don't know i probably not only because i do worry we do have a lot we're in an area where they're still developing they're still putting in some houses and stuff and i'd be a little worried about that but i'm not gonna sit there and knock something that you know thousands of people do daily in another location and and have no issue with so Appreciate you chiming in, Mark. I love that. I'm glad we we could hear more about that. I'd love to hear from other folks. You know, it's something we could go back and revisit. So if somebody else has a recipe they want to share, I would love to hear it. Mine's been working great. I have three big enclosures packed up ready for three Therophosa species that'll be going into it. Can't wait to do that. And then I have three enclosures set up for my Lephista species that are coming in, and I can't wait to report on how that works. So thanks everybody that took the time to chime in. Now for today's topic, we're gonna kind of it's gonna be kind of a fun one. Again, I don't want this to sound like a I'm being a jerk about it because I'm not. We're we're doing this tongue in cheek. We're having a good time with it. But the title of this one, I'm kind of right now. I don't know if I'll change it when I go to post it. It's like it's it's titled Why Even Ask. And what we're gonna talk about is when people approach me to ask questions, I give them what I think is an informed, logical response to either why or why not they should do this and then they go ahead and do it anyway and you could jokingly put why even ask and then like in parentheses afterwards I told you so but I hate I told you so moments I never want to be the guy that's like I told you so I nobody wants to hear that and generally speaking when you have a I told you so moment in the tarantula hobby it means 
something died. I mean, usually it means something went very, very wrong. So I don't like the focus on the negative aspect of it. But I've been noticing that I do get a lot of emails that people, well, I've, I've shared before that I'll get ones where people will email me and go, I love all your stuff. I listen to your podcast religiously. I've watched all your videos. And then they hit me with something that was covered a million times in all those. However, I get ones, other ones that they ask me questions that they seem to want my input on. They ignore my input and then it ends up in tragic results. And I'm, I hope if anything has come across over the years, it's the fact that I am very open-minded. I try to see all sides of things. I try to see if somebody's doing something different than me, I try to understand that it whatever regardless of how different and foreign it seems to me it's working for them the only time I get a little bristly is when somebody's doing something differently and they go out there and publicly try to get other people to follow suit and it may not be something that's good for a beginner it may not be something that the average keeper is going to benefit from and that's the only time I tend to get a little bristly because again all of this stuff for all these years has been about making this as easy as possible for the keeper and therefore making sure that the animal's are safe and, and raised correctly and have their best chance at survival. So that's the only time I get a little bristly because it really does frustrate me sometimes when people, a lot of times folks come up with these new ways of doing things and they think they've like created this amazing new way of keeping tarantulas and they don't realize that it's been done before and that we stopped doing it because of whatever the reason may be. It wasn't the appropriate way to keep the tarantula. So that kind of drives me nuts when folks do that because I don't think it shows they don't have a very good depth of knowledge of how far tarantula is keeping uh, tarantula keeping has come over the last 20 or 30 years. So to kick this one off, what kind of got me thinking about this is I've shared the story with my student at school that she went out and picked up a tarantula. She was talking about getting a tarantula. They went out to some mall or someplace in Rhode Island, I believe it was, and she ended up picking up a tarantula. And for those who haven't heard the story, I think I told the whole thing, but just in case, she originally showed me a picture that she found online, and it looked like a El Sazme. And I'm like, all right, not something I would normally tell people to start with, but you can be fine. I tried to give her some advice. She didn't seem to want to hear it. And then she said the spider stopped eating. So I said, all right, it's probably in pre-molt. It molted. And then she showed me a picture of the spider, and I was shocked to see that it is a young adult Pisolotherium metallica, the Goody ornamental, Goody sapphire ornamental, whatever crazy name they have for it now. And I freaked. And I was in the office when she showed me, and I had two other teachers there, a couple of students. I'm like, whoa, this isn't good. And she's like, why? It's so friendly. I, I've held it. And I'm like, you've held it? And we got into this big discussion about how this species, uh, Peace of Ethereum in general, I've, I've explained to her, I've raised several species of them. I've explained to her that generally speaking, they are shy spiders. They would rather bolt than bite. But I also explained to her that they are also, they pack some of the most potent venom of any tarantulas in the hobby. And I said, they, she's like, well, will the bite kill me? And I'm like, no, the bite won't kill you. But people have explained that you're going to feel like you want to be dead for a little while because it hurts so bad. And I explained about the cramping, the nausea, the headaches, the heart palpitations, the fact that these symptoms can pop up months later without warning. So she's like, well, so you're telling me I shouldn't hold it. I'm like, you absolutely shouldn't hold it at all. I said, you need to give it a place to hide. You need to keep your hands away from it. She's like, well, I, I fed it out of my hand. Should I do that? And I'm like dying. The, one of the kids looks at me and goes, Mr. Your face, you look like you're going to pass out. I was freaking out. Like you can't, this is the type of stuff we talk about when we get into you know the hobby and why people warn folks off of old world tarantulas because this is the worst case scenario with somebody who doesn't have the background knowledge like no keeping experience whatsoever 
struggles a bit to understand when somebody's telling them something like, I don't care that your spider seems cuddly. I'm telling you right now that one bad day, you're going to have a very, very bad day. So we went through the whole thing. She asked me some tips about it. And I was like, you got to promise me you're not going to hold it anymore. I don't care how friendly it seems. Don't hold the spider. Keep your hands away from it. If it gets spooked, it could bolt. I explained how a lot of times when people get bit, the spider goes to run. They go to put their hand down to stop it. They put it on the spider. Spider bites. All this stuff she seemed to completely understand. Came back and, and, and was happy to report. Listen, I fed it the other night. I didn't try to feed it on my hands. I didn't try to uh, tong feed it. Great. So we're sitting in class the other day, and I asked how the spider was doing, which was probably a bad move. And she explained how the spider enjoys getting its butt scratched. And I'm like, what? And she goes, yeah, I, I go in and I touch its butt and I scratch its butt and it kicks its back legs up at me. I said, that's the spider trying to get rid of whatever that stimuli is that's touching his butt. Oh, no, he loves it. And then she told me uh, in the entire class how when the spider is, when she opens the spider enclosure and the spider's sitting there, she puts her finger out to its face so that it can smell her and know it's her and that it reaches out sometimes with its little legs and its front legs to touch her. And I believe, as she said, it'll reach out to shake hands with her. Now, anybody who's kept spiders, anybody that has any type of experience in the hobby right now is probably sweating, thinking about approaching a piece of Letharia species. And again, I love them. And I would agree that the majority of mine are very laid back and probably wouldn't do anything, but it's that probably aspect. All it takes is that spider to get spooked and it's going to jump latch right onto that fingertip and this girl is going to be in a world of hurt. So again, the kids were laughing because apparently my face was just contorted in horror. Like, I can't believe you're still doing this. And I explained to her, don't pet it, but it likes it. It doesn't like it. it. Don't pet it. Don't put your finger out in front of her. And then she explained that the other day while it was doing this thing where it was reaching out to grab her hand, she grabbed a cricket, held the cricket out, and it took the cricket from her. Oh, boy. So I will say this one isn't exactly, doesn't exactly follow the same pattern as the other ones because originally she did not solicit any advice to me. I gave her unsolicited advice, but she did come back afterwards and ask me some questions. So we've established that I may know what I'm doing because I've kept them for many, many years and she's still not listening to what I'm saying. And I've said before, this is a, I did a podcast about how I, I recognize now that as much as I'm going to do this stuff, there's going to be folks that just don't listen. That happens. But with these anecdotes, these are moments where I've corresponded with the person. The person seems to recognize I can, you know, I have the experience to give advice. They, you'll see in the ones coming up, they have actively asked my advice on something and then completely ignored me and gone ahead and, and done it. So in this case, with this young lady, she has ignored the fact that I've told her not to put her hands in there, not to play with the spider, not to handle the spider. God, don't feed the spider out of your fingertips and stop scratching its butt. It's not a dog. It doesn't like it. She's describing what the spider's doing and the kids are kind of giggling because I'm explaining yeah that's it trying to kick your hand off of it as far as it knows it's in a tree and there's a branch you know rubbing against it they don't like things touching them they they don't like pets so hopefully this one doesn't end in a nightmare story but I have a funny feeling we are kind of uh Rolling on to a tragedy here because I don't see this one ending well. I've kept many Pisolotheria metallicas. They're wonderful spiders. Don't get me wrong, but they can also be very, very high strung, very skittish, more so than some of my other Pisolotheria species. And I really worry how this one's going to turn out. So now for our first one that doesn't involve something that just happened. This one was not that long ago, actually, probably within the uh, middle of last year or so. I got contacted by a guy who desperately wanted an OBT. He said, and I get this a lot, where 
we try to warn folks, listen, we know there are a lot of beautiful spiders out there, but you really, I always encourage folks to at least get some experience with some more forgiving new world species before they jump into old worlds. Can people jump right in with old worlds? Yes. And I've been privy to many people that jumped in with no problems whatsoever. I'm not one of those people that's going to come down on somebody immediately and go, you are going to put yourself and your family at risk. Sometimes you can tell these people have raised other animals. They're going to do okay with them. But then sometimes you get a situation like this where the guy freely admitted he had never kept a tarantula before. He was still a little scared of tarantulas. He had read all this terrible stuff about OBT. So all this stuff about them being nasty, orange bitey things, you know, seen videos with them with their fangs out, dripping venom. And he was, quite frankly, totally intimidated by them, but he loved the looks of them. So we have a situation where a person is buying a tarantula because they like the way it looks, which is, I know people come up all the time and it kind of drives me nuts. They go, Every, somebody should be able to get whatever tarantula they want as long as they do the research. That sounds great on paper. That probably worked for you. But having done this for a decade, I can tell you for a fact, it doesn't work for everyone. There are people that cannot, they can read Every single piece of literature, anecdote, forum posts about a certain spider, they get the spider and it goes wrong. The spider escapes. They freak out. It's not, some people can do it. Some people need more time. So in this case, the individual was scared of the spider, which I've always said if, and this is why I tell people when they're ready for old worlds, if you're thinking about getting an old world and you're sweating and you're panicking and you're, you're not, you're probably not ready yet. It can't be something where you're scared of the spider. Well, this guy freely admitted he was scared of the spider, but he came up with a novel idea that nobody has ever heard of before. He decided that he was going to drop a, I believe it was a three quarter inch sling into a 10 gallon aquarium that he had used for a reptile. And he asked me, is this a good idea? So I had obviously already covered this before in a couple podcasts. I've talked about it at length that if you're buying a spider, one way to tell you're not ready for a spider is if you're afraid of doing the rehousings. Rehousings are part of keeping tarantulas. I don't care what anybody says. It's the natural way to keep them. We don't just drop them into a big giant enclosure because A, it's hard for us to keep track of the spider and B, it's probably more importantly, it can be difficult for the spider to find prey. And I can tell you after years of doing this that the only folks that are looking to do do this are ones that are usually picking up an old world species and are afraid of it. So they're trying to get away from, from the part that's going to cause the most friction, which is the rehousing. Now, I'm all for limiting rehousings. I've talked about how you can go from sling to adult enclosure, but I'm not for and will never be for dropping a tiny sling into a giant enclosure. It just isn't, it isn't appropriate. So I responded to him with links to the podcast on slings and adult enclosures, asked him to listen to it. I explained that he was that afraid of it. He should probably wait until he got some experience with other spiders and that there, those OBTs are always out there. They will be there when he's ready, but I encourage him to get over his fear of them and over fear of spiders first before getting an OBT. So... A few weeks later, I get an enthusiastic email from this guy. It might have been a month or so, and I had to go back and go, wait a minute, who is this guy again? Oh, that's right. Enthusiastically showing off the 10-gallon enclosure he had set up full of cute decorations. There were little aquarium decorations. He's like, I put in plenty of hides for it. There were aquarium decorations. There were little fences. It looked like something that like you could set up action figures in. And no spider in sight. He ended up getting a three-quarter inch spider sling, dropped it in. 
He said that he gave it some thought and realized that in the wild, the spider would have all the room in the world to move around. They wouldn't, they don't need to be contained to a little area because they have the world as their oyster, so to speak, when they're out in the wild. So he didn't see the big deal with dropping it in the smaller enclosure. So I believe it was something along the lines of, thank you for your advice, but the hell with you. I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway. And the reason he was emailing me was twofold. Now, this is where it gets kind of amusing. First, he wanted to show off the setup. Very, very proud of the setup, which I thought was terrible because of the fact it just didn't seem appropriate for a spider. Even for an OBT, there was like the hides were, again, aquarium decorations and stuff. There was no real fake plants or anything for it to web to. It was set up like a diorama. And then secondly, he'd been dropping crickets in for a week and he wanted to know how he could tell if the spider was eating because, wait for it, he had no idea where the spider was. So I, again, I've always tried to be polite. I always try to recognize that, you know, if I come back and I'm nasty about something, it, who who's to gain anything from it? I'm just going to be a jerk. The guy's going to get irritated with me and not contact me again. And the spider's going to end up dying. So I explained to him again as, a, and I tried, it's hard to do something like this without having, and I told you so vibe because I had to mention to him, when we had this conversation, I told you this was the problem. I said, you're going to have a difficult time finding the spider. I believe what ended up happening is he found a little webbing in a corner by one of the hides. He thought the spider was there. He kept dropping crickets by it. He pre-killed crickets. He put them by the, the area, figuring the spider would eventually come out. He'd find the crickets there dead the next day. Finally, he got scared that the, the spider was dead. So he removed the structure from that area, cleaned away some of the substrate. No spider. Couldn't find the spider. So... I came back, I said, if I were you, I would look carefully to find that spider. I would put it in something smaller. I said, if you want to keep that enclosure, that's fine, but put the spider in something smaller. Keep it the smaller enclosure inside the larger one. That way, it's just when it's time to rehouse, you just unscrew the top or take the top off. Let the spider come out on its own. Let me know if there's anything else I can do to help. I never heard from him again. So I have a funny feeling that spider was lost. The good thing is with an OBT of any spider can be dropped into a tiny, a large aquarium as a tiny sling and live, I would go with the OBT. I just, I do worry as hardy as they are, they still need to eat. And if you look at the size of a 10 gallon aquarium and compare it to a little three quarter inch spider, that's a lot of real estate for it to get lost in. So do not know how that one turned out. I have my suspicions, but um, never found out one way or another. So again, another reason why I'm not a fan of putting slings in adult enclosures, it's, I, I, I'd like to say this is the only time somebody's contacted me with this question, but I get this quite a bit, a couple times a year. Somebody will go, I know what your thoughts are on this, but here's what I want to do, and they're going to drop them in adult enclosure. So again, just a warning, if it's not appropriate. It's not appropriate. You can't keep track of the spider. The spider can't find the meals. It's not the great outdoors where that substrate, maybe like Mark's substrate earlier, he was explaining that it was filled with little creepy crawlies. In that situation, the wild, it would be. There would be all kinds of insects and things. It would be teeming with stuff for these slings to eat. They wouldn't have to go very far. However, without that in your regular enclosure, they've got nothing. It's got a bunch of dirt. So that was one of them that kind of aired in. And again, it happens occasionally where folks go, I know your thoughts on this. However, this is what I'm going to do. And it's like, why are you contacting me then? I've already shared what I think about it. I, it that's not my thing. So Next one, I've gotten this one quite a bit, and we had a newer example of it again last year, and I've mentioned this one before. Tarantula, we're going to call it tarantula condos. It's when folks have a large enclosure that they decide, hey, this enclosure is too big for one spider. I'm going to partition it, 
and make it a good enclosure for several spiders because if it's too big for one, then we're just going to make use of it. And this is comes with the whole found cage thing where you a lot of folks get into the hobby and they'll say, I have an aquarium. I have a reptile enclosure. I Will this make a good spider enclosure? And then they tend to get upset with me when I go, no, it, it won't. It's not. That's not a good enclosure for them without a lot of work. And they use them anyway. In this case, the individual contacted me asking, he said he had a 60-gallon long aquarium that used to have fish in that's been sitting in the garage. He's now been looking into getting into the hobby. And he was wondering if the 60-gallon long aquarium would be a good home for a 3-inch, I believe it was a Gramostola pulchra that he was getting, a juvenile. So I went into the, you know, you can give them all that space, but with a spider that big, it's, you know, kind of a lot of extra space for the spider that I would put it in something smaller, at least until it's an adult. Then if it's an adult, you want to put multiple hides, go crazy with it. Just make sure there's enough substrate that it can't climb and fall, all that stuff. And he comes back with, you know what? You're right. After thinking about what you said, this is way too big. I can't see this one little spider in it. So what I'm going to do is I'm thinking I'm going to partition it off so I can keep three spiders in because there's already some other spiders I'm looking at that I want to get. So I went into my warning about the many stories I've been told over the years with people trying to partition enclosures to hold several tarantulas only to have one spider eventually get over to the other one and kill it. It's happened multiple times. I've only heard one instance over the years where somebody had been doing it for a while and it didn't end in tragedy and they showed me and they put a lot of thought into it. It was literally, it was, it was done in the best way possible that there was no way the spiders were going to be able to get to each other. However, I heard, I think I shared the story a while back in a pod, podcast, probably four or five years ago, where the individual had, I want to say it was two albopilosis, two T albopilosis in one of these partition cages for years. And then one day, one of them made it over the top of the enclosure in between the wire mesh and the top of it came back and it had eaten the other one. And this person was so upset. I felt terrible. And there wasn't a told you so moment here. I just felt bad because it worked for so long until it didn't. So I told him all of this. I tried to explain it's not a good idea. He's like, well, I'm pretty handy. I think I can pull it off. I forget. I think he was using wood for the partition or something. The problem was, again, it was one of those ones with a sliding top that was mesh. And I think the issue people have is there's no real good way to keep that mesh flush against the top of the partition. It's not connected to the top. So he went ahead, he did it, he sent me a photo of how he did it with, you know, putting the whole thing together. I think he used aquarium sealant or aquarium silicone to put all this, the partitions in. He set up these, it looked great, it really did. He had a light on the top of it. It was a really beautiful looking enclosure. I'm like, well, let me know how it goes. Well, he did it and unfortunately I got an email several months later saying that his G pulchra, the juvenile G pulchra, climbed and was able to squeeze over the top to the other condo, for lack of a better term, where he was keeping a new T. albopilosis young adult female. And he came home from work and he noticed the female looked like the albopilosis looked like it was eating, which he found odd because he hadn't fed her. She was up on her tippy toes. And then he noticed a large black bolus in her you know, mouth. She was currently eating the pulchra. So the pulchra made it over, went, hey, this is great. I made it to the motherland. The other spider went, oh, a meal, and ate it. He was heartbroken. Now, to his credit, 
he emailed me back and it was like one of those things where he wanted me, it was almost like he wanted me to punish him. He's like, I, you told me not to, I did it. I'm such an idiot, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no dude, it, it's fine. Like I was upset because this could have easily been avoided, but what are you going to do? Pour on it. The guy obviously loved his spiders. He just lost one that, you know, he was very attached to that he had spent a lot of money for. He didn't need piling on, but I was just like, you know what? I would not bother doing this anymore. I would take the spider. You know, if you want to keep the other one in there, fine, but I would not put any other spiders in those other partitioned areas. And that was the last I heard of it. So there was an instance where, you know, it stinks because I don't, like I said in the beginning of this podcast, I don't want to be proven right. I would rather not hear that uh, you suffered a very preventable death because you didn't want to listen to somebody that might know a little more about the situation than you do. Because again, as I try to explain to people, the best part of the Tom's Big Spider stuff for me is over the years when I first started, yeah, it was my own personal experiences. The majority of stuff, I would go on arachnoboards, I'd always search spiders, try to get other people's experiences well, but a lot of it was based on my own. I still based on my own, but I talk to so many people and hear so many stories about this that it's like, I'm getting fed all this information from other keepers. It's like I have my ears and eyes open. I can hear this stuff and say, hey, it's not just me. This was other keepers that went through this. So tarantula condos, do not do them. I mean, unless you're really, really adept, make sure that if you're use, doing one that has one of those sliding tops or a top that covers the whole thing, I would. the guy that did a nice job of it took the sliding top off, built partition tops that you could slide in and out. So each one had its own secure top. There was no way for them to get over. Cause it seems like the big thing that happens is those screen tops, they can squeeze underneath. You'd be amazed the small spots spiders can squeeze into. Now, the next one we're going to call communal chaos. I get a lot and I blame partially myself for this. I 100% there are things, very few things I've done the hobby that I look back on and go, man, I want that one back. But the uh, for a while, I was trying some communal setups with spiders. I did, obviously, the Mbalfori was the one that set me off. I had done a ton of research on that one. Every single thing I had read up until the point where I started mine, it sounded like they went really well, but the problem was there nobody kept up with them. So my goal when I started the Mbalfori one was to take this information, track it, all the way through the first two years and see what happens. And my five girls are still living together great. It worked out great for me. I think with most folks, we've realized, yes, they do well at least. You know, I, there's still folks out there say they're not communal in the wild. That's fine. But at least in captivity, they seem to usually do very well in communal environments. Does that mean there aren't situations where one goes nuts and eats the other ones? Nope. Like any animal, there can be friction. So sometimes they end in tragedy and that's the problem with the communals. They work great until they don't. So I did the P. Metallica communal. I did the NNC communal. Both of them, I ended up eventually breaking up because there was friction in it. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people saw that when Tom's into this stuff, I'm going to try other communals. Because I think one of the things I said with the M. Balfouri communal is I want to prove once and for all, it was a good communal species. And because there were some people that said, no, it can't be kept that way. So I think what some people get out of that is, well, how do we know which other species can't be kept communally? How do we, how do we know that this species, that the B. smithy can't be kept communally, that the T. stermy can't be kept communally? And I'm talking that I've been asked over the years, can I keep a B. smithy? Can I keep a, B, a T. stermy communally? Can I keep C. versicolors communally? Can I keep T. albopilosis communally? Because apparently the person with the T. albopilosis was hilarious. They saw some horror movie where there was a bunch of spiders climbing on a guy, a bunch of different species and they weren't attacking each other so he's like well that proves right there that they can live together i get a lot of questions about the communal stuff and 
Unfortunately, a lot of the species they approach me with have zero history of ever being kept communally. There's no indication in the wild. There's no indication in people's collections. And I have to try to explain to them, no, this is not worth worth trying an experiment for. It's not going to end well. So the individual that contacted me, apparently a friend of his had raised, I believe it was Pam, I want to say it was Pamphibedius mascara. And he had a bunch of slings, and this individual had read about Pamphibedius species, Aranya polito, that had been observed living communally in the wild. I'd seen pictures with the females with very well-started juveniles and young adults around them in the same den. I had a guy years ago, and hopefully if he's listening, he chimes in. I haven't heard from him for a while, but he had been down in South America years ago. He had sent me photos that they had taken of this species of Pamphibedius with all of these little smaller, you know, there were slings, there were juveniles, young adults, all of them living in the same area. It was amazing to see these large spiders living communally. Well, this guy had heard this and he had decided, well, if one species of Pamphibedius can live communally, then obviously they own all can. So his idea was to start with a bunch of the Pamphibedius, again, mascara slings. They were all about an inch and a half and put them all into one big bioactive setup and watch them grow communally. And he asked me what I thought about this. He said, you know, obviously if Pamphibedius or species Aranio Polito can do it, then obviously the mascara could probably do it, right? And my answer was no. I would not chance that. This is not anything anybody's ever witnessed that I know of in the wild. Nobody's tried this in their own enclosure. I'm sure it's going to end horribly because these are not recognized as being a communal species. And then he used my own words against me or tried to and said, well, I recall reading with your M. Balfouri communal, you wanted to prove to people that they could be kept together. And I had to explain, yeah, but with the M. Balfouri, there was a lot of information already out there showing they can be kept together. People have done that. I wasn't the first one to do it. I was just trying to be the first one to track the whole thing, good or bad, through all the way through. So he's like, well, I appreciate your feedback, but I think I'm going to give it a try. So he updated me. It was a few weeks later. He had this big enclosure set up. I want to say it was like a 15-gallon enclosure. Uh, kind of had some plants in it. Some It was multiple hides, moss. It was a beautiful-looking enclosure. And sprinkled about the enclosure were several juvenile or you know, juvenile size Pamphibedius species mascara. They were all around there. I think I counted like four or five of them around there. I think he said he put like eight of them into the enclosure and he was going to track it and see how they did. And he's like, so far, so good. I put them in, you know, a day ago and I think they're all still here. I dropped in a ton of crickets and they seem to be doing fine. They were all eating by themselves. Everything's going great. So I'm like, okay, we'll see how this one plays out. So uh, I waited, I waited, I waited. I didn't hear from him for a while, kind of forgot about it. And then several months went by and I'm like, hmm, I didn't hear from this guy yet. So I looked for the email and I actually shot him one and said, hey, it's Samaran. I remember you were setting up this communal enclosure. Could you please update me? I'd love to hear about how it's going. Nothing. And then I it was uh, some more time went by. I'm like, maybe it got lost. And my mails, emails a lot of times get lost in bulk. So I'm like, maybe he didn't see this. So I shot him another one, found his email address, started a brand new email. Hey, it's Samaran. I was wondering how your Pampho species mascara was going. Nothing. So did my emails land? Did he get my emails? I suppose there's a possibility that they landed in the bulk and he didn't get to tell me about how well this communal was doing. However, I think more than likely the experiment didn't end up going well. Uh, these uh, Pamphibedia species are ravenous when their slings 
I can easily see one crossing the other. Boom, one of them's dead. The other one's super fat. I'm sure it wasn't long before his whatever he had in there, seven, eight, turned into three or four, turned into two, whatever. I'm assuming at some point, hopefully, he got wise and pulled them apart. But we'll never know. So another example of somebody asking me what I think about something, me trying to explain, I don't think this is a very good idea, and then doing it and having most likely catastrophic results. And again, it's not about gloating. I, I, I don't want to be proven right in these situations. I would have much rather have heard, hey, you won't believe this. These things are eight inches now. They're all still living together. I didn't figure that would be the case, though. Uh, most likely, he's probably down to a handful of them. Now, this last one is very, very recent. It took place this winter. Somebody contacted me. They had purchased an avicularia avicularia from a pet store. And unfortunately, they didn't do some you know research around their home beforehand to see what their temps were. But once they got the spider home, they recognized that their household temperatures were a little on the cooler side. Now, when I asked what the temperatures were, the individual told me that they were usually in the high 60s to low 70s. So I explained to this person... High 60s, low 70s are the lower end for an avicularia species. However, I've raised Carabina versicolor, avicularia, 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 gerensis, other avicularia species in those temperatures years ago before I heated my tarantula room. In the wintertime, it would drop down. Some of the shelves were 66, even 68, 70. So I said, I wouldn't freak out too much about those temperatures. There, I would find a higher shelf in the house where it's a little bit warmer. I said, if you go around your house, you're going to find that usually up higher, especially when the heat kicks on, it's a little warmer. Keep it up there. It should do just fine. I asked if it was eating. He said, yep, it seems to be eating just fine. I just worry it's going to get too cold for it. So then he comes back and it was like a little time goes on. He goes, listen, I think I'm going to add some extra heating. I don't have a heat mat, but I do have apparently used to keep some type of reptile and he had a bunch of lights. I want to say it was one of those 60 watt ones. And he said, would it be okay? I know you say don't use heat lamps on them, but would it be okay if I carefully position this heat lamp over top? He had the, the tarantula was in an exoterra uh, tall, nano tall. He had kept the wire on the top, the mesh on the top. He goes, would it be okay if I make sure I just position this heat lamp so it's far enough above the enclosure that it doesn't completely beat down heat on it. Would that work? So I explained to him, I said, listen, I don't encourage folks to use heat lamps. There are some folks out there that do use them to give them a temperature gradient. I'm That's not my thing. And I believe those folks use a very, very low wattage bulb. So there's no chance of it accidentally overheating. I said, in my opinion, if you're going to use the heat lamp, and I think I explained this before, back in the day when I had the queen and I had my other tarantula room, I had snakes in there and I had ceramic heaters on them. And the ceramic heaters would obviously give off heat. It would radiate up from the enclosure. And sometimes what I would do is I'd strategically have shelves around that area. So those shelves are a little bit warmer than the rest of the room. So with that heat coming up to those shelves, the shelves weren't really close to it, but there was enough heat there that if I put some slings up there, it was just a little bit warmer than everywhere else, but there was no chance of it overheating. So I said, what I would do if you're, if you're dead set on using the heat, the heat lamp, what I would do is position the lamp in a way that it's to the side of the enclosure. So it's getting a little bit of heat. So you're going to want to arrange it a little bit on the shelf to see where the good places to put it, but allow it that it has a spot to get away from the heat. So it's not, if it's right on top of the enclosure, that whole enclosure for the most part is going to heat up. It's going to be hotter at the top, a little warmer, uh, you know, a little cooler at the bottom, but there's no place for the spider to escape the heat if it needs to. If you put it off to one of the sides or off to the side of it, so it's kind of radiating a little heat, the spider can get the heat it needs. It'll be fine. 
Guy comes back. He's like, listen, I've done some research. These guys like it 80, 85 degrees. I'm going to put the heat lamp over top of it. He bought a rheostat, one of those Zoomed rheostats. He goes, I'm going to put it in there so it doesn't overheat. And I'm going to keep the heat lamp on the spider. And I'm like, okay, not what I would encourage you to do. And I think one of the biggest problems with that, and I've heard this happening before, this is one of the reasons why heat lamps can be dangerous. Have you ever had one of those days where it's like right now, the other day it was, I believe I woke up in the morning, it was 16 degrees, super cold. The next day, it was 58 degrees. So that's a huge jump in temperature. Now, even if you have a rheostat, if that thing's beating down on that and it's nice and warm and all of a sudden that room heats up, it's going to heat up so fast. Even if the rheostat kicks in, sometimes it's not soon enough. It's already heated that spider up to a point where it could be dangerous. So that's one thing I worry about. The other thing is those rheostats are garbage. I used to use them for my snakes. They were terrible. Like they're, they malfunctioned. They're not very accurate. So I explained to him I would not have it right on the spider. I would put it again off to the side. I think you're, I, I, I'm just warning you, it's it's a big risk if things should heat up and are unexpectedly or if that rheostat should malfunction, you could end up baking your spider because in that small enclosure, there's nowhere for the spider to escape. If it was the wild or if it was a burrowing species that could get down in that dirt where it's cooler, wouldn't be such a big deal. But with an avicularia, they're going to want to be that heat's going to, they're going to come out. It's going to be like a nice hot day, not hot enough for them to hide. They're going to come out, enjoy some of the heat, and then they're going to get big. Long story short, I get an email from him. Lo and behold, it the it was a combination of he isn't sure if the rheostat malfunctioned or if it was because it was a very warm day in his house, but he was at work. Apparently, he had big blinds in his room. He had a big picture window, and he forgot to close the blinds in the morning because it was overcast when he went to work. The sun came in, heated up the room big time. It was a nice warm day. And unfortunately, the rheostat either didn't turn off the heat in time or the heat had built up in the enclosure. Well, the enclosure got super, super warm. I think he came in and said it was in the 90s in the enclosure, partly due to the heat, partly due to the sun coming in. So for folks who are like, well, technically the heat didn't help. If the heat wasn't on it, it wouldn't have been a big deal. And he found the spider at the bottom of its cork bark in a death curl. So luckily, this one does have a happier ending because he was like freaking out. He's like, I want to thank you. I should have listened. The uh, I didn't realize it was going to get warm this day. This happened. And he was able to take the spider out. It was still somewhat responsive. He put it in a tarantula icy. You put it basically his mouth parts in a little shallow water dish. Within a couple days, it had sprung back to life. He has now since gotten rid of the heat lamp. Last I heard, the spider was doing fine. It ate again. But that's a situation that could have easily have ended in tragedy. And again, I get it. I get the people freaking out about the temperatures being too low. I've been doing this for a long, long time. And I still, I told you we had problems here with the heat not keeping up. I think we finally have it fixed. But there were days where I'd come up here and be dropping down to the low 60s. And I'm like panicking, even though I know in my mind, everything's going to be fine as long as it goes back up. And it always did within an hour or so. But we do get freaked out about that. So we think, you know what? In this case, chancing the heat is better than not having heat on it at all. I get it. I do believe in this case, the guy, if I remember correctly, the spider wasn't a full grown. It was like a four inch one. He wanted it to grow faster. That was the other reason he wanted more heat on it. He wanted to stimulate its metabolism. But you have to keep in mind that if you're using, you know, a powerful bulb, if you're using a little bulb and it's just putting a little bit of heat, changing a couple of degrees, probably not that big of a deal. Even if things heat up, it's not going to be enough to heat it up enough to kill the spider. But when you're using like I've heard people using the ceramic ones, I've heard people using the red lights, you really, really a 
most cases, you should not need them at all. They shouldn't be broken out. But if you do use those, you're adding an extra potential danger to your spider. That's what I see it. Can it go on? Are there people that use them and use them? Absolutely. And I, I would say if you're somebody that wants to do this, contact somebody that uses them to find out how they do it, what they use, how they make sure make sure their temperatures in whatever the room they're doing it in don't fluctuate fluctuate widely. I will tell you, I wouldn't want to do it in this room up here because there are some days where it heats up quite a bit. If it gets warm outside, this room heats up. Now, if I have heat on things, that's going to be a problem. So, and this one, it didn't end in tragedy. It ended up well. Everything was good. The guy's like, I know you're going to tell me I was an idiot. I did not tell him he was an idiot. Like, I got where he was going with it. It's just, unfortunately... He was reminded quickly that sometimes when you do stuff like that, when you add heat, that you can create an extra hazard for your spider that doesn't need to be there. All right, so those are the ones I have for today. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to them. Again, for me, sometimes it's therapeutic just to go through some of these. And, you know, it's kind of a reminder to folks that are just getting into the hobby that these are things that don't bother asking me. I mean, don't, let's not keep non-communal species communally. Let's not add heat when we don't need to add heat. Let's not try to partition off enclosures that aren't, you know, appropriate enclosures to begin with. Let's not drop little slings that we're scared of raising into big fiery demons into adult enclosures. And for the love of God, please don't pet your peace letharia species on the booty then it's it's not a good thing but this is you know some of the stuff i go through some of the stuff that i you know people i interact with these are some of the things that come up i just think it's fun sometimes to share them with others so that will do it for this one um as for youtube videos this week i have the video i'm going to do a short with the gbb versus the d diamantinensis i was trying desperately to get footage of my juvenile gbb first off she hadn't molted. She had never adult colors yet. I wanted to show off the adult colors. Well, mine finally molted, but it's been super shy. The other day, I came into the tarantula room, and she was out in the open. I took her cage off the shelf. I opened up, and miraculously, she stood there and allowed me to get some footage of her. So that'll be it'll be a short one. Then next week, it'll be the Fonapelma rehousings. I have several Fonapelma I have to rehouse. And then hopefully after that, it'll be the Therifosa rehousings. Also, I realize we are nearing the 10th anniversary of Tom's Big Spiders, the website. I cannot believe it's been 10 years. I told the Billy we're looking at each other like, how the heck did that happen? 10 years of doing this. Now, I have anybody that's been on the website, I have neglected the website for a while. I was shocked to see. I think the last article I had posted was back in 2022. It's just, it's time consuming to write the articles. And... I think you get more bang for your buck sometimes with the podcast and the videos. However, there are still many hundreds of people hitting the website a day. So I want to make sure I keep up with it. So I am starting to post new articles up on there. My goal is this year kind of celebrate the Thomas Big Spider's 10th anniversary to really build up and get some of these articles that I've had. I've had some written for years. I found one the other day I wrote three years ago that I never posted, just never got around to it. But I'm going to start putting those up to try to rekindle that. So if you haven't gone and joined the website, please do. If, you, if you're if you so inclined, I'm not going to beg. I mean, it's just, I think a lot of folks don't recognize you can join the site and that way you'll get notified when there's an article. I am going to start trying to organize things better so it's easier for people to find the information because remember when I first started, it was literally the Tarantula Keeper's Journal. It was just my experiences in the hobby and then it morphed into more an informational husbandry type site and a lot of it has been over the years just trying to keep, you know, back when I was really into it, trying to get articles up and not necessarily spending the time I needed to organize it correctly. So there'll be big changes coming up there. I'll try to make it more intuitive as far as finding information that people need. So feel free to check that out. That will do it for this one. As always, you can find me on ThomasBigSpiders.com. You can find me on Thomas Big Spiders podcast, YouTube. Guys, have a good one. Stay safe. We'll catch you all next time.